0: Welcome to Entitled, a new podcast about Millennials by Millennials. I'm your host, Gabe Salazar, and each week I'll be joined by my friends and experts to talk about pop culture, current events, and social issues that affect uh, my generation. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tim Clydesdale, a sociology professor from the College of New Jersey. He received his bachelor's from Wheaton College and his master's and PhD from Princeton University. Uh, He has written several books about the topic of emerging adulthood, and his latest book, The Purposeful Graduate, Why Colleges Must Talk to Students About Vocation, talks about the importance of vocation. And he's been a sociology professor here at tc since 1996. So hello. Thank you for joining me today. I'm super excited.
1: Well, thanks, Gabe. Thanks for inviting me to be on your podcast.
0: Yeah. So I really wanted to interview you for this because I think it is super important to kind of get that expert look at why millennials are like younger, you know, the Younger generation is the way we are. Um, I know you did a lot of research on emerging adults and specifically about their first year after high school. So can you talk about a little bit about like what your findings were in terms of like, you know, their traits and kind of what they were getting themselves into?
1: Uh, that's a great question. One thing that I would say is I don't use the term millennials um, mm-hmm. because uh, a lot of use of that is based on some pretty thin um, evidence, pretty thin data. Uh-huh. Uh, it's it's premised on the idea that there are these distinct and clear and overwhelmingly important uh, cohorts of, of Americans that are born in different time periods that have this common view of uh, – common experience and therefore a common view and a common approach to understanding. And I think while that can happen uh, with some uh, with some generations, I think it happened, for example, with the Depression generation and the World War II generation, and to an extent with the Baby Boom generation. It really I don't see it as prominent. Since then, Mm -hmm. what I do think has really happened is that um, the process of becoming an adult has changed significantly over the last 60 years. And at this point, now it takes about 10 years more to do the things that people consider adulthood traditionally, which is to uh, leave home, to finish school, uh, to get married, to have a child, and to become financially independent. Mm Um, and so that just takes uh, folks typically now into their 30s before they often get all those done. But the other thing that's interesting about it is that many people today um, really doubt that those are all markers of adulthood anyhow, right? Um, There's plenty of adults who don't have children, or there's plenty of adults who uh, are continuing to work on degrees. Are they less adults because of that? Mm -hmm. And so the only thing that really people agree on today as being a marker of adulthood is actually financial independence. Which is the hardest thing to kind of do in the current economy? So um, I think I got a little bit off track from your question, but that's that's the larger framework that right. I'm using when I think about uh, about this topic. So why don't you h- h- pitch that question at me again now and let me yeah. see how I can a- can address it a little better?
0: So I guess my just general question was that: What kind of trends did you see in your findings when you were uh, uh, studying emerging adults and like in terms of? Uh, how they were going through life. Like you said, it's taking, what, 10 years to kind of go through that phase? Why is what's causing that delay? So,
1: all right. So what's causing that delay? So there's there's a number of different factors that are there, but uh, the, the largest factors are um, are economic and educational. And. Mm-hmm. Um, there are fewer kind of middle-income jobs out there. Um, jobs are either high-skill, high-wage, or low-skill, low-wage. So high-skill, high-wage um, job is typically something that requires... Uh, something even beyond a, a, a bachelor's degree, often a, a graduate degree and some, some specialized training uh, in order to have that sort of a career. Or low-skill, low-wage jobs, um, such as you know, someone who drives for Uber or someone who serves you at a fast food restaurant. There's plenty of jobs in that area. There's many fewer that are in the middle, mm-hmm. um, in between. They're harder and harder to come by. Uh, so it takes longer for people, either if they're in the low-skill, low, low wage uh, end, to even reach a level of financial independence. Um, that's going to take at least two incomes, and even then, um, something really special to happen in order to find housing. Or at the high end, it takes uh, a lot of years of, of graduate study, a lot of years of career building, before people really kind of reach that um, level of you know, financial independence. So economics is the kind of the major factor here. The other factor I alluded to in my earlier comments, which is about uh, cultural change, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, not everyone's sure they want to get married or if they do want to get married, they want to really, really, really be sure it's the right Right. person. Um, You know, divorces uh, happens to about 40 percent of all couples um, at this point and uh you know if anyone's ever kind of seen it and most people have seen you know the the hardness of of uh, of a divorce and the effects of that uh they want to make really sure that the person that they're going to marry is someone that you know they're not going to be divorcing nobody right. gets married with the hope of getting divorced or the plan to get a divorce right. so so that like that makes people kind of leave that for later and later so those two kind of big factors, what I call the economic changes, the global economic changes, because they're really driven globally. And then the cultural shifts, mm-hmm. um, how really what's responsible for this extended path to adulthood.
0: And you touched upon like marriage and all, you know, those different life kind of life events. And I feel like that also traces back to financial, you know, issues because like getting married is expensive. Like you have to pay for a lot of different things. And I feel like that is also a factor in terms of like the cultural changes, right? Or, oh, oh, sure, right?
1: absolutely. Um, I mean, you know, in this particular area, if you do the standard scripted, um, uh, wedding, which is mm-hmm. you know a a beautiful outdoor ceremony and then uh you know a, a full bar reception, a, a five hour reception, and all that stuff, I mean, you're looking at at least fifty thousand right. dollars and probably uh, seventy five thousand dollars. It's extremely expensive. I mean, you don't have to do any of those things to get married. I mean, you can show up um, at uh, at at the um, uh, clerk's office right. uh, in, in 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 any uh, uh, board of health uh, records center of a town, and you can get married by uh, by a clerk uh, for basically a, a, a fee, and I. Th- there might be a blood test in New Jersey, I'm not sure. Mm. Um, so, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to be expensive like that at all, but it tends to be. Um, and so people leave it almost as a capstone experience now for adulthood. So, after they've finished school and after they've become financially independent, um, and after they typically have secured housing and moved out of their own home, then they feel like, all right, now I've, I've reached adulthood, now I'm ready to uh, get married.
0: Right. 10 years is a long time because I feel like I see uh, kind of a mixed bag. And I guess in terms of my uh, social circle, I have friends who are who are 24, 25, getting engaged, getting married. And then I have ones who are earlier than that, that like the one person who got engaged 21, you know, right out of college. And it's just like personally for me, I can't <laughs> I can't see myself doing that because it's like you have to think about loans, you know, if you take out loans and then if you. All Like you said, the $50,000 on average of the marriage is just mind boggling to me how people can just go down that road so early and so kind of so quick.
1: Yes. And and I mean, I've got a actually a former student of mine, uh, a graduate of TCNJ. She's defending her dissertation next week actually at university of pennsylvania and she did her dissertation on early marriage because she herself was i think 23 when she got married and she became very interested in this but it's almost um among middle class and and upper middle class americans it's almost uh, seen as a shock if someone marries before the age of 25 Mm -hmm. um that's kind of like Really? And, and people are really kind of off-put by that. Once you kind of cross the 25 threshold, then it's kind of like, ah, right, that seems okay. But before that, it's, it's almost jolting. Um, and the interesting thing, again, if you could roll back time 60 years ago, people were not only married at 25, they were living independently at 25, and they often had several kids at, at 25. But it was easier for a single salary to support a whole household right. sixty years ago, those types of jobs aren't available anymore. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of wonder which is, which is first here is it the economy, is it the cultural change? I mean, I really think these things feed off of each right. other. Um, but uh, but but it's interesting to, to see the the overall effect is <clears throat> to get married too soon uh, is is kind of stigmatizing, but then. Then you run into this other end. If, if you kind of marry after 30, that starts to unsettle, particularly a lot of young women. Uh, because in their timeline, the age 30 looms really, really large. And mm-hmm. it's this goal among many mainstream middle-class uh, young women to be married by t- 30 with the hope then of having children typically by 35. Right. So it really gives people a pretty narrow window uh 25 to 29 mm, <laughs> which, which is very short yeah <laughs> yeah that and you know that means you have to find just the right person at just the right time right. and figure all that out and 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 that's that's putting a lot on those five years yeah wow that's
0: yeah i guess in your own research of the emerging adults like did you see any traits that kind of were specific to just that kind of cohort of people that kind of separated them from the baby boomers in terms of like how they acted how they kind of you know, viewed the world. Which cohort are you talking about? This? Oh I guess the um the younger the I guess the millennials. Oh yeah. millennials. Yeah. Um you know
1: uh I I mean the thing that I would say that's interesting about young adults is um they have extraordinary optimism about their own lives mm-hmm. but they tend to be pretty worried about the rest of the world around them. So it it it's almost kind of ironic. I mean it, it it's good that people are, are really, really hopeful hopeful and everyone has the view that they're going to be the exceptions and all of their dreams are going to come true. Um, but somebody somewhere's dreams are not going to come through because if, if, if uh, emerging adults everywhere are kind of saying, you know, it, it's a scary world out there and it's tough to make it and, and uh, you know, you really need to kind of scale back your dreams, then some of them have to be doing it, but no one mm-hmm. seems to be doing it. So, so the one thing I would say is I noticed as a trait is, is a high level of, of optimism, a high level of hope, um, and expectation that things will be better for them. Um, another interesting trait is just the extraordinary importance of being connected digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I remember uh, one time listening to uh, an interview, and it was with a grad student in Boston. Now, Boston, as you know, gets really, really cold in the winter, Yeah, and this, uh, this young man was on the television talking to the reporter, saying um, that because money had gotten so tight, he was not paying his uh, heat bill anymore.
0: Oh, wow. But
1: he hadn't stopped paying his cell phone bill. Because the thought of being disconnected was more troublesome than the thought of not having heat. I guess he figured he was in an apartment. Maybe enough heat would just kind of seep in through the walls, right. and you throw extra blankets on, and somehow you make it through. Um, but the idea of actually disconnecting your phone was was it's like no, I can't, I can't possibly do that. And I think that's a char- I mean, that's an extreme a- attitude. Right. but That sense of needing to feel connected is extraordinary. Um, and I've, I've noticed it with, with students. Um, I mean, one of the things I ask for in, in class is for students uh, to, you know, really behave as adults, put the phones away. Right. And, it, you know, and most of them do a good job. I mean, I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Most of them do a good job. But it's amazing how many still, you know, I see them slipping it out and they're looking at it. But, I mean, they, it's like it's, it's almost for some an addiction. So the importance of, of being connected to people and always being reachable mm-hmm. Um, is 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 pretty significant i think that's an interesting uh uh, characteristic of of emerging adults in particular yeah
0: why do you think that is that we're so connected Or, or we can't not be away from technology or like being connected with others through social media i'm i'm assuming it's usually through social media
1: right um right yeah. i think there's a couple of reasons one i think there's a sense of you know you know fear of missing out uh mm-hmm. would be a, would be a, a big driving factor but also um i think just the way work um and even school has shifted you need to actually be attentive to information on a regular basis mm-hmm um if something happens for example with our course system here at canvas and it goes down and a professor sends out an email saying all right we'll turn in your papers this way you need to know the, how that's going to happen so right. important information comes in that way and you may have a job and your and your boss expects you oh i need you to come in an hour early and so they're texting you so it, it's also now that the pace of life kind of depends on people mm-hmm. being as readily available um it, it would be very hard to be a productive member of the economy, I think, without a cell phone at this point in time. Right. I just don't think it would be possible. Right. So in that sense, I think emerging adults are simply reflective of, of how the whole economy has shifted.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you think that it's a bad thing that we're so connected all the time?
1: <clears throat> it can be a bad thing. It can certainly be a bad thing for some for some people. Um We know that there's a correlation, for example, with the more time people spend in social media, the lower their own self-image is, Mm -hmm. the the greater their rates of depression are. Um, It's it's good to have these connections, but to be too immersed kind of takes people away from other things like the face-to-face interactions Mm -hmm. or just things that you can't really be having a screen like you can't go on a run and have a screen in front of you. You can right. attempt to do so, but you're likely to fall <laughs> at some <laughs> point and really right. and really hurt yourself. And those sorts of things, you know, the exercise, the face-to-face interactions, are the things that that are marks of of a healthier um, uh, overall balance in mm-hmm. one's life. So um, I think the main uh, the main Thing that I'm concerned about is just when it becomes too much and it almost becomes a level of, of kind of obsession. And people are spending time going to the level of really kind of curating their online image for right. others. It's kind of like now now you're moving to a, a whole different level that maybe
0: isn't the healthiest place mm-hmm. to be. Right. So I wanted to touch back on the other aspect that you said was that we are overly optimistic. Mm-hmm. Where Where does that come from? Because I feel like I see a an even mix of you know i guess maybe in my own friend group like they're all very politically involved so they kind of have a more of a hopeful kind of stance um but at the same time I have some friends who are just like yeah well whatever you know whatever i do is not gonna matter it doesn't you know w- Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: I think you're talking there, of course, about the sense of affecting the, the, affecting the political order yeah. um, or affecting the social order. And yes, that's the area where uh, emerging adults actually tend to be a little bit more pessimistic, thinking there's really not too mm-hmm. much they can do. So if you have some friends who are more optimistic that they can do something, they're actually a little bit more the exception. What I was speaking about the optimism is more about one's own individual life, uh, okay. the sense that Yes, I know that some people never marry and yes, I know that 40% or 50%, they often have the numbers wrong. It's actually 40%. Many people think it's 50, but they think, you know, half of all marriages end in divorce. Um and yes, I know that not everybody has their, you know, dreams come through with regards to their career. Nevertheless, I think all those things are going to line up for me, you know? And okay. so that's yeah, 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 the yeah. piece that that yeah. I'm saying is there's that's the almost almost bizarrely optimistic view. Uh, that, that one's individual life is going to, to, um, uh, to turn out
0: really well. Oh, okay. I wonder why, why, why are people optimistic? Because I, I can see how people can be cynical in this day and age when, you know, sometimes people get scared of like, mm. after, especially after graduating from college, a lot of right. people are scared of not having a job or, you know, even then. Cause for me personally, I say like, oh, I'm fine if I don't have a job. You know, I'm, oh, I'm, I guess I would call myself overly optimistic too, and be like, oh, I'll get one, you know, somehow, but still that have that anxiety of that lingering thought, like, you know, what if I don't? So I guess I, my question is, you know, where does that optimism come from?
1: Well, at some level, I think the optimism is just, it's beneficial because you want young people to be optimistic Uh because then they're likely to do things like complete a degree. If you didn't have some optimism that you'd ever get a good job, you wouldn't be likely to complete your degree. And then that would definitely set you up for a terrible Mm -hmm. job, right? So uh, a certain amount of optimism, I think, is functional uh, Mm -hmm. for people um, because that gives them hope and that gives them desire to keep kind of moving forward. Um, But it's just, there is, I think, from early childhood, this view of you could be anything you want to be Mm -hmm. if you just try hard enough. And, uh, you know, I would say, no, actually, you can't. Um, (laughs) um, There, you know, there may be some things that you can make some good traction on if they kind of match a skill set you have and a need. Right. Um, But, you know, uh, even even, you know, in my teen years or in my 20s, I could have never had a shot at playing basketball, even at the collegiate level, much less, Mm -hmm. uh, you know. I mean, I'm 5'8", I have no, there's no way I could ever be a basketball (laughs) player, right? Um, So, you know, but there is that that sense of folks can become almost anything. We instill it in our children, um, and in a lot of the children's um, films and children's Mm. stories, you get these sorts of uh, things, and so then there's never kind of a message that comes in a little later. Well, actually, it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, so I think I think that's a factor too, um, and and the optimism, yeah,
0: right. That makes sense. That yeah, I feel like I've had I had a different experience. My parents were always like, you know, uh, pursue your dreams, but be realistic. So I've always kind of had that in mind. They're very practical people. They they were never the ones who were like, if I came up to them and I was like, oh, I want to you know, I want to dance. I think I'm good at dancing. They'd be like, nope. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You you know, this is what you need to focus on, okay. you know, to be a bit more sensible about, you know, be practical about your life. Right. They want to be, be a doctor, a lawyer and all those money making right. professions. But I'm neither. So. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so. <laughs> practical is good. Um,
1: practical parents is a, is a good thing. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, there's almo- sometimes parents can be almost a little too practical mm-hmm. uh, because, I mean, I still hold to that sense of you need to excel in something. And you can excel in all kinds of things, and then you can find the ways in which right. that opens doors for you. And so I don't want to prematurely close people down into a few occupations that, that uh, lead to that. Uh, you know there that there's that aspect that, that kind of breaks my heart a bit when I find people just kind of settling in too yeah. soon for something really really practical uh, when they still you know at 21 or 22 maybe even haven't fully identified their strengths mm-hmm. and the sorts of things they could excel at
0: so yeah and that kind of touches on the point of uh, your latest book The Purposeful Graduate about vocation right in terms of um, you know what are the trends and what Uh, these students are kind of pursuing in their career. So can you talk a little bit more about your research in that?
1: Sure, sure. So The Purposeful Graduate was um, a book that came out of my study of 26 different campuses across the United States um, that had received sizable grants from the Lilly Endowment to uh, foster a conversation with students about questions of calling, purpose, vocation, meaning, Uh, what things really kind of matter in their lives and uh, the 26 campuses that I studied were part of 88 actually that had received these grants and so um, what the endowment wanted me to do in my national evaluation was get some sense of you know did this really work and if it did work is there larger lessons for higher education here. And I was honestly dubious at the Mm -hmm. very beginning that this was gonna work, because I thought, all right, so you're gonna take idealistic students, you're gonna talk about these really highfalutin ideas. Um, They're gonna be completely useless by the time they graduate, you know. Um, And I didn't find that at all. Um, And that was the thing that I found so interesting. Uh, What I found was, yes, these campuses did engage students in thinking about, all right, so what are the kind of skills you have, what are the passions you have, what are the values you have, absolutely. But they always paired these things with service um, and they got students plugged into internships where they could use these skills they got them involved in service programs um, they sent them overseas uh, to do uh, various projects and so all the students that got involved in these things paired their kind of i'd say idealistic hopes with actual experiences in many different types of settings mm-hmm. where they saw the reality of what this work is like so by the time they graduated, um, they had what I called a grounded idealism. They very much wanted to see their lives make a difference in this world, which. Emerging adults tell me overwhelmingly they want their lives to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also were prepared for the fact that this wasn't going to be an easy process. This wasn't going to be a quick process. The communities are flawed. The organizations don't run efficiently. And so they were prepared for that, and they were prepared to take a long kind of path to get there. Um, And so I was really struck in um, uh, the—I interviewed a lot of people over time— and I was struck as I, I spoke to people who had been more than a year after they had uh, graduated from college and had had any participation in these programs, how much more resilient these young, uh, these young adults were compared to the um, comparison interviews I did with students that had graduated from campus that didn't have these programs. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really kept the long view in mind. And even though they got dealt a number of setbacks, they kept holding on to what they— uh, wanted to do it and found ways to still do it so uh, so the the book I think is really encouraging campuses all across the country to build this in mm-hmm. um, to their into their conversations with students and there's many different ways to do it you can build it in through courses you can build it in through uh, co-curricular activities mm-hmm. you can build this in through residence hall programming there's lots of ways to do it um, and there's no single right way to do it either. Right. Um, but uh, I think it's very important to do it.
0: Do you see, do you see that kind of resiliency um, as a trend for, you know, the younger adults, similar to that optimism? Because I feel like those are kind of hand in hand in that they're optimistic about, you know, the long run and the and their journey and their careers are.
1: Yeah, I wish I could say yes to that, but I'd actually <laughs> say no. Um, and that is one of the things that you sometimes will read when you read some of the generational literature: is is why is there not more resiliency among among young adults, mm-hmm. and why is there um, uh, less? Why is there not enough grit, for example, among young adults? And uh, so I don't, uh, on the whole, see the resiliency. Resiliency is something I think needs to develop over time. Um, when people run into troubles, when people have setbacks and they learn how to deal with those, that's, I think, where resiliency gets born. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need some life experience to develop resiliency. And uh, so it's hard generally for young adults to have it. But um, there's concern among some people that it seems that, that young adults may have less than others. They, they may be a little bit more... Um, a little bit more uh, likely to, say, struggle with um, what other people might be thinking about them or maybe a little bit more likely mm-hmm. to um, to give up early rather than persist. I don't have any data on that myself. That's just some of the things that I've, I've heard people kind of speculate about.
0: Right. Okay. I guess my last kind of question about this topic is that what kind of advice would you give to those young adults or people graduating from college who are kind of unsure or like not as optimistic as, you know, everyone else around them? That's a great
1: question. And uh, one of the things that I did this semester, I'm teaching senior seminar mm. and uh, I used a new book um, in in the class, um, a book that is uh, it's it uses design thinking and then applies it to kind of life planning. And uh, th- the book is called Designing Your Life, and it's by Bill Burnett um, and Dave Evans. Um, you can find it you know, readily uh, available. Um, and the thing that I really liked about that book is it really helps people begin to open up and think about one, the fact that there's many different lives that a single person could live, many different interests, mm-hmm. um, that designers don't think their way forward. They build themselves forward. They prototype. Um, and so are there some ways where you can begin to talk to people who maybe are doing something that's interesting? Get curious uh, about something that, that folks are doing and start talking to people. And then lead, let that conversation lead to more conversations. Then secondly, is there some things you can actually do? Basically, they call it prototyping. Is there something that you can do that begins to get you a little closer to Mm -hmm. what you've become interested in? And if you start putting those two things together, it's amazing the way in which you can start seeing many possible paths to pursue, many opportunities that kind of lie ahead, and now it comes time to start thinking about, wow, I have to narrow these down now. I've got too many. Um, so I, I would recommend that book and I would recommend, you know, a little bit of design thinking, Mm -hmm. um, as you think about your life, because, um, there is a lot of potential to do a lot of interesting things. But if you just follow the standard model of, well, I, I have a degree in a certain field, that means I can only work in that Mm -hmm. field, which only 27% of people work in the field they're trained in. Oh, wow. Um, So if you get into that mindset that, well, I can only work in this field, and then I have to have this resume, then I send it in, and I hope that someone sees my resume and calls me, which is the traditional uh, job search model, it's going to be a long, long path of job searching, and it's going to be disappointing um, Mm -hmm. for a lot of people. The most interesting jobs typically are not ever even advertised. People even create them when they run into folks that they find that are interesting. Like, you know, we'd like to have you part of this team. You're really showing a lot of interest here. And they create something for someone. So um, I would say, you know, kind of kicking out of the standard model, thinking about uh, uh, college and jobs and job searching and, and thinking in a much broader way. And uh, you can start tapping into a lot more opportunities that will get you pretty
0: excited about some things you can do with your life. That's amazing advice for myself. i going to keep that in my mind. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, I, this is the official last question. I asked this of all my guests in the spirit of the name of the podcast, which is entitled it's kind of poking fun at my, you know, millennials and apparently we're entitled to everything. Um, I asked this of all my guests, what do you feel entitled to? What do I feel entitled (laughs) to? Um,
1: uh, I feel entitled to um, clean air, um, clean water, and um, I would say a place, uh, uh, a nation that observes the
0: rule of law. How about that? I agree. <laughs> thank you so much, Dr. Clydesdale, for this interview. This was really fun and super insightful. And hopefully it'll help a bunch of people my age when they're graduating or, you know, are on their way. Uh, thank you again. Thank you, Chris Tenov, my audio engineer. Thank you to the IMM department. And follow Entitled Podcast on Instagram at Entitled Podcast, on Twitter at theentitledpod, Pod, and on SoundCloud at Entitled Podcast. See you next week. Bye.